helping to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. This is the Constitution Study on the America Out Loud Network with your host, Paul Engel. There's a quote attributed to Abraham Lincoln I think we should all be familiar with. How many legs does a dog have if you call his tail a leg? Four. Saying that a tail is a leg doesn't make it a leg. Ladies and gentlemen, this, among other things, is an example of what we used to call critical thinking, which Merriam-Webster's online dictionary defines as exercising or involving careful judgment or judicious evaluation. Now, based on many of the discussions I've had across this country, critical thinking seems to be a skill many Americans have lost. I believe G.K. Chesterton once described our situation perfectly when he said, When men choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing. They then become capable of believing in anything. Today, I want to first talk about the study principles that we have here at the Constitution Study to critically think and examine and to use judicious judgment or judicious evaluation. Then I want to examine some recent news articles applying what we've learned to see if we've become capable of believing in anything, regardless of the facts or evidence. So ladies and gentlemen, I welcome you to the Constitution Study. I hope this is something you find interesting. I hope you find it valuable. Very often I come here with just with news articles and, and, and other things, but I think this critical thinking is truly important. And it's actually been been brought about by several discussions I've had recently, and in fact, over the last several years, where the facts and evidence don't seem to matter to people. Or, or very often what you'll have is they want to find a way to manipulate the facts and evidence to support their desired outcome. So I'm actually working on a new project here at the Constitution Study uh, that will include some training. And part of that training um, deals with how do we, setting principles for study, setting a foundation for our study that is both strong and resilient. I don't mean it's resistant to other ideas. I mean, it can defend its positions strongly. So I've been working on this. It's been top of mind lately. While at the same time, I've had uh, dozens of, of comments and emails. And what I find, and, and while many of them have been supported, many of them make counter arguments that actually contradict the facts that are in place. So I thought it'd be worth coming to you today and, and giving you a brief preview of the study principles I'm working on and then seeing how they apply. Now, my, my basis for all of this is a couple of simple things. One is I always want to look at original sources. I want to get as close to the horse's mouth as possible. Sadly, a, a lot of people expect me to believe what gets said by the other end of the horse. But I want to get to the documents. What do I mean? When someone says the Constitution says this, I want to go back to the Constitution and see if it's true. When someone says a founding father said something, I want to get back to that the, an actual writing from that founding father or, or a, a some sort of, re- of record that shows that's what they said. In other words, I don't want to simply take people's uh, uh, word for it. 
Now, it's not that I uh, naturally impute bad motives to those, but if I want to know the truth, it's got to go to the beginning. Now, the other thing we base this on is, as far as I'm concerned, it's only an opinion until there is proof. Put it this way. Someone comes to me and says, Paul, the sky is blue. Well, okay, that's kind of a generalization, but you know, sometimes the sky is black, sometimes it's red, sometimes it's it's yellow. Those of you who've been in the area of a tornado know it gets this kind of odd yellowish hue to it. So if I if someone tells me the sky is blue, I actually want to look to see right now, is the sky blue? Now, does, do I assume that that person's lying to me for some nefarious end? No, they may be misinformed. They, they may have been uh, uh, misled, or they may, you know, it may have been blue when they were last outside, but it has changed since then, and they haven't observed that. So we want to go to as original sources as possible. We want proof. Uh, oh, by the way, expertise is not proof. Simply because somebody has alphabet soup after the name, simply because someone is a is a constitutional lawyer, doesn't mean what they say is any more than opinion until they provide proof. See, expertise is a great way to explain the truth, but it should not be a substitute for truth. I can't tell you how many times someone comes to you, well, so-and-so said this, or so-and-so wrote this, or, or here's a video that some expert explains it. And when I watch it, it's all opinion. But there's another time that shows up, because sometimes they will provide evidence. Ooh, the evidence is good. They'll send links to articles or to, to other, or to documents or to recordings that are to prove their point, which brings you to the next thing we look for. Trust but verify. Say someone uh, uh, says, oh, well, you know, um, the Constitution of the United States says that black people are three-fifths of a person. And you say, well, where's your proof? And they say, well, here, you can find it. It's in Article 1, I believe, Section 2 of the Constitution. And you go and you read it. You go back and you verify it. And you find that Article 1, Section 2, Clause 3 says... Representation, representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states which may be included within this union according to their respective numbers which shall be determined by adding to the whole number of free persons including those bound to service for a term of years and excluding Indians not taxed three-fifths of all other persons. By the way, it goes on to talk about the actual enumeration and all that, but that's the language. It's called the three-fifths clause. And I've had a lot of people tell me that well, see, the Constitution, first of all, you'll notice it never says anything about black. There's no color involved here. You have free people, you have Indians, and you have everyone else. And notice, when they're talking about, you know, what they're talking about is counting them for representation in the House and for the apportionment of direct taxes. It says nothing about the value of the person. So when I go and I verify this, I say, well, it doesn't actually say that. Now, this is where expertise comes in, because having studied this, I can go back to the, the debates and see, oh, I understand the context. And if you're curious, the answer is, during the debates over the Constitution, the slave states wanted to count their slaves as uh, towards representation in the House, even though uh, they, they didn't vote uh, and they didn't... Um, 
they, they didn't have, they couldn't serve in, in, in the House, but they still wanted to count them. Now, the anti-slave state said, well, you're basically treating them as cattle. If you're going to count your cattle for representation, we're going to count our cattle for representation. And the compromise was, all right, since they are not free, they do not vote, they cannot serve as representatives, you can't count all of them. We're only going to count three-fifths of them. And they did this for a very simple reason. The, um, the majority of the states wanted an eventual end to slavery. They knew they couldn't simply turn the taps and have it magically disappear. What they did not want was states with lots of slaves to have that much influence in the House of Representatives from a legislative standpoint. And that's why we had the Three-Fifths Clause, which, by the way, was repealed with the 14th Amendment in 1868. So that's an example of, of this, this critical thinking, this, this learning to think. And something basically, but Paul, why is this so important to you? Well, uh, several people have used variations of this quote, but the one I always remember is Alan Greenspan talking to Congress saying, members are entitled to their own opinions. They're not entitled to their own facts. You see, in my mind, what we call our education system has not taught people how to think. They've taught them what to think. By that, I mean, rather than giving them the opportunity to, to teaching them how to look at an argument, evaluate it, find its flaws, find its weaknesses, find its strong points, and then follow through, they're given a list of you're to believe this, and you're to believe this, and you're to believe this, and if you contradict it, you're going to lose your grade. We see this from the, the whole movement of, of uh, we stopped keeping score right because, well, we didn't want to hurt the kids' feelings. We started with, uh, we got rid of, was it red pens? Because, well, it made students feel bad. And then we started this whole idea of, well, you have your truth and I have my truth. Right? Ladies and gentlemen, that's a, that's a lie. See, truth is defined as the body of real things, events, and facts. In other words, it's what actually is. Going back to Abraham Lincoln, saying that a tail is a leg doesn't make it so. The truth is, a dog normally has four legs. Simply saying, well, in my truth, they have five legs because I count the tail as a leg. That's not truth. That's your own opinion. That may even be your preference. That doesn't make it true. I place a lot of the blame for this with our government education system. They have they they, they are often where you see these things like uh, your truth, my truth, uh, you know that type of language, that type of attitude comes into being. If you think something is true, it's true. But that's not where it ended. But I don't hold the education system solely to blame because the parents are the people ultimately responsible for the education of their children. Too often we handed them over to government and said, you teach them, and then we're surprised when they teach them this nonsense, to this point where we have entire generations that seem to have lost the ability to think critically, to, to judge, to evaluate an, an, an argument. And we end up spending, it seems, our entire lives arguing and debating opinions without any foundation to hold them up. That is why... The first piece of the, the new constitutional education tool I'm working on starts with building that foundation, that, that, that foundation that says, no, there is such a thing as truth. 
Just because you say it doesn't make it true, it's only your opinion until you can prove it is true. Just because you're an expert doesn't mean it's true. How many experts were wrong in the last few years? Expertise may help you explain a truth. It does not make something a truth. You still have to prove it. And even if you provide proof, I want to verify that the proof you've provided is actually what you say it is. I can't tell you how many times, again, someone sends me a document, says, or, or sends me proof that what they're saying is true, and it says the exact opposite. And lastly, that we go to the original source. You don't play telephone with facts. You know, I tell you, you tell somebody else, you tell somebody else. Eventually, what comes back is completely different. No, no, no. Let's go to the original source. Let's go to the horse's mouth. Now, why is that so critical for constitutional studies? Well, the answer is simple. If the Constitution doesn't mean what it says, then it can't mean anything at all. And since we require government officials at all levels to take an oath or affirmation to support the Constitution, how do we know what they're supposed to do if we don't know what the document says? See, for too long, we've created, we've allowed experts, we call them lawyers and judges. And they say, well, they will do that for us. They will determine what is and is not true. And then we find out that, guess what? Law schools don't teach the Constitution anymore. Do you know what they teach? They teach the opinion of judges that they euphemistically call case law. Now, I know there's an idea of common law that's come up by the courts and all that. There's a problem, though. Um, the Constitution, according to it, is the supreme law of the land. People who tell me, well, the courts determine what the Constitution means, except that's not what the Constitution says. You look at the Supremacy Clause. It says, This Constitution and the laws of the United States made pursuant thereof, and any treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of the United States, shall be the supreme law of the land. Did you hear the word court anywhere in that? See, by going back to the original document, by looking for the truth, the evidence of the statement, we not only can weed out the, the, the errors, but now we have a stronger foundation. So when someone comes to me and says, well, the Supreme Court said the Constitution means this. I'm sorry, the Supreme Court is nine people that truly need a reading comprehension program because the Constitution doesn't actually say that. But the court said it does. I don't care. This court's not the Supreme Law of the land. The Constitution is. It guards us. It, it gives us a way to stand when people disagree with us. And if we use it properly, it, it, when someone comes to you with evidence that challenges a preconceived notion, take, for example, that per, a person that recently I was talking to, I was doing an interview with, that claimed that uh, the Constitution claims black people are three-fifths of a person. I showed them evidence, and they refused to accept it. Now compare that to a talk I was having uh, with a, I was discussing things about uh, presidential elections, including with a constitutional lawyer, a lawyer, not only a constitutional lawyer, but one that has spent a decade focusing on the electoral college, the, the, the electoral election of president. And I pointed out something to her she had never seen before. It, she'd read it, but it never clicked that the, the president is one, if he gets a majority of the electors appointed, if a state doesn't appoint electors, the total number for electing the president goes down. Now, she saw that. Oh, I never noticed that before. 
See, this foundation, it, it didn't shake her entire understanding. She realized there was something that she didn't, you know, we, we had, we disagreed on it. And I showed her my evidence and my evidence, and she, she looked at us, oh, that's right. That's where we should be. It should not be to defend us against all challengers. It's that if you're going to challenge something I, I, I believe or something I'm saying or something I'm doing, I need evidence. I'm not taking your word for it. I need evidence. But you give me evidence, well, then I'll have to modify my stance. Now, again, I, as I said, I want to get into some examples of this. But first, I have to take a break. Now, I hope you'll head over to my website, constitutionstudy.com, to find out more about what I've been working on and maybe even follow the, uh, the, the plan for what I'm working on. You want to find out more, sign up for one of the, the mailing lists, and you'll be notified as I'm developing this new product. But I don't know about you, sometimes I get to the end of the day and my mind is shot. I, have, I just can't focus anymore. Now, you can try an energy drink or you could try a, a good, strong cup of coffee, but you know what I use? is I use Focus and Recall from Healthy Cell. It helps boost my short-term focus and my long-term brain power using vitamins. I don't need the sugar. I don't need the caffeine. But I get the, the, the mental acuity that I need. And it all comes in an easy-to-use travel-ready gel pack. Now, as an America Out Loud listener, you can get 25% off your first order if you use the code OUTLOUD at checkout. So please, go to HealthyCell.com, use the code OUTLOUD at checkout, it lets them know you listen to America Out Loud, and you get 25% off your first order. And we'll be back right after these messages. Trouble concentrating or recalling information is frustrating, embarrassing, and kills productivity. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Focus and Recall to boost your brain power. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Focus and Recall is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients to help you immediately sharpen focus, concentrate longer, and strengthen recall. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code out loud. We wouldn't go a day without washing our hands, brushing our teeth, and washing our nose. Well, wait, we wash our nose? Yes, the number one place where bacteria, viruses, and pollen enter the body is through the nose. So the average person breathes over 23,000 times a day. That's 23,000 opportunities for bacteria, viruses, and irritants to get into your nose and make you sick. For an extra layer of protection, wash your nose with Clear. That is Clear. X-L-E-A-R. Clear's drug-free nasal spray features xylitol, an ingredient proven to block adhesion of many nasty bacteria and viruses, and effectively clean, not just rinse like a saline, but wash your nose. Clear nasal spray quickly alleviates congestion, opens your airway, and ensures your body's natural defenses are strong. Read the research studies for yourself at clear.com. That's X-L-E-A-R.com. Protect yourself from the pathogens and junk you breathe. Pick up a bottle for you and your family today. Hello, I'm Ben Marble, MD, and I founded MyFreeDoctor.com as a donation-supported, faith-based nonprofit with a mission to save lives by delivering free doctor visits to patients in all 50 states of America. MyFreeDoctor.com treats a broad range of health concerns like COVID-19, long COVID, sinus infections, urinary tract infections, rashes, medication refills, and more. So please visit MyFreeDoctor.com, where we're healing America one person at a time. 
welcome back, everyday Americans. Rejoin the Constitution study. Today we're talking about learning to think. I spent the first segment kind of putting some some footings down, some some foundational points that I that I use when I read and study, when I are and when I'm analyzing uh, a topic or when I'm challenged in something that I've said to um, uh, either try to prove my point or to evaluate what people are asking me to, to think and believe. I've done this. I've developed this over years after seeing how often it's so, and so easy to lead people astray simply by being assertive, simply by asserting something is true. It's amazing to me now to realize how much marketing and the, 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 the tools of marketing, uh, getting people to uh, buy into what you say are now part of news, education. I ended up this segment talking about schools and the idea of simply handing our children over to the government to teach them. Now, granted, I have limited direct exposure, right? I've been I've been out of, of school for decades. Uh, I'm not telling you how many decades, but many of them. My daughter, we did not send to public school because of the concerns we had over the education. But when I when I see these articles from teachers or uh, news events and stuff when they're saying it's not working. For example, there's a 10th grade high school teacher uh, he's by the name of um, Dan Fisher. Now he he doesn't say where he goes to school, which I I can understand. But he makes a point of saying schools are failing. They're not teaching our children he says, 10th graders can't read, most students don't want to participate, and teachers care more about woke indoctrination than addressing these issues. He says, kids have plenty of energy. He says, after school is fascinating. They're not playing, they're not running, they're just on their phones. Now, as bad as the, the education, and again, my number, from what I understand, roughly 90% of students go to quote-unquote public school. In other words, a government-run school. And while some schools are better than others, overall, I would not say they're, they're, they're all that great. But what I've noticed is the, the basic ability to think and reason is not being taught. And this is evidenced by, um, by, by young adults who can't make a cogent argument. I, I had somebody leave a comment for me uh, just today saying, this is true because it's true. They didn't see a problem with that argument. They were willing to publish to the world, since it was a comment on a, on, on a social media platform, that their recognition of a certain fact is simply because it is true. See, to me, that's someone who... who I used to teach high school Sunday school many years ago. And every year I'd get some new students in, and I always started the year with a very... Uh, with one comment. I, always t- I would always tell them that the most difficult question I will ask all year in this Sunday school class is, why? In other words, I I don't simply want to know that you've got the right answer. I want to know why you think that's the right answer. In other words, I'm asking you to show your work. Because I found so often that the the what was being expressed was not their own opinion. It's one they had inherited from somebody else. And often they had no idea why. Now move that into the classroom. And you see children who are not taught to think, 
they're taught to repeat information. They're not, at, they're not taught to, to challenge, to question, to ask why. They're simply told, give us the answer we want and you'll get your passing grade. And that, of course, is all important because you got to get your passing grade so you can get more of the schooling that will tell you what to think, not how to think. And to me, that explains why so many children are graduating from high school, now are young adults, and, and now we're dealing with at least one close to two generations of children that are now adults that are now making decisions, not just for ourselves, but for the, the nation as a whole. And they don't have, they seem to not have the capacity to critically think, to, to analyze a situation, to answer the question, why? Now, there's a, a case before the Supreme Court challenging the President Biden's authority to simply cancel student debt. Now, not surprising, there were demonstrations outside the courthouse, outside the Supreme Court. One of them that was caught was Randy Weingarten. Uh, she is the head of, I believe, the largest teachers union in the country. And this is her idea of an argument about why student debt should be canceled. And frankly, and this is what really pisses me off, during the pandemic, we understood that small businesses were hurting. And we helped them, and it didn't go to the Supreme Court to challenge it. Big businesses were hurting, and we helped them, and it didn't go to the Supreme Court to challenge it. All of a sudden, when it's about our students, they challenge it, the corporations challenge it, the student loan lenders challenge it. That is not right, that is not fair, and that is what we are fighting as well when we say, cancel student debt. All right, so, so let's break this down. Let's take our tools we've developed and look at this argument. Now, her first point is we should cancel student debt because when the government instituted restrictions on small businesses, they were hurting and they didn't go to court. Now, if you seem to be confused about how that links up, you're probably not alone because how's that a rational linkage? She says that big businesses were hurting because of government regulations and they were not challenged in the court. Again, what does that have to do with student debt? Oh, see, now that they're talking about canceling student debt, that got taken to court. So what we see is an appeal to emotion, right? Because she's loud, she's shouting, she's ranting. Um, you see an appeal to emotion. You also see the appeal to emotion in the we have to go get them, right? It's the, it's the big businesses, it's the corporations they're doing, it's the financial loan, we have to get them. They're evil. And of course, you've got some sort of appeal to, well, we didn't do this before, so we can't do this now. With two completely different cases and two different arguments. You know what you don't see? You don't see one lick of evidence. Now, in her opinion... Somehow, canceling student debt is a good thing. I oppose that idea. Why? Why is it fair for you to take out a debt and expect someone else to pay it for you? How is that fair? How is it fair to take people who did not go to college or who paid for their own college or paid off their own student loans and ask them to pay for the student loans of others? How is that better not fair? Just. How is it just? How is it just to penalize the people who did the right thing 
for people who either did not do the right thing or, by the way, um, maybe just have not paid off their debts yet. It's funny she complains about corporations and and uh, student loan houses uh, uh, complaining about this. How is it just for the lower income people to pay off part of the student debt of the wealthy people? It's not. But you see, her argument isn't based on on facts, isn't based on data. In other words, it's not based on truth. It's based on emotion. And remember, this is the same Randy Weingarten that um, pushed very hard to keep schools closed, those closures damaging the education of the children, damaging their future, their futures as a whole, without any scientific evidence. We take a school system, an education system, that already has problems, and we're going to make them worse. And even when it became blatantly obvious, with again, with scientific data, with studies showing that children, young, especially young children, don't get almost never get COVID. It's almost never lethal to them. That there's no evidence that they transmit it to others. That there's no evidence that of, of what's called asymptomatic transmission. But yet she still wanted to impose her will, her opinion on the students without any scientific basis. And then we get this report out of Chicago. I've covered several of these before. But out of the 649 public schools in Chicago, 55 of them didn't have a single student that met grade level expectations either in math or reading during the 21-22 school year. In fact, out of that 649 schools, 22 schools have zero students who met great expectations for reading and none that were proficient in math. There were 33 schools where there was not a single student that was proficient in math. Not a single student. So what is the the solution to this argument? Is it to spend more money? We just need to throw more money at it. Well, we've tried that for decades. It hasn't worked. In fact, the United States is like the top two or three in dollars per pupil spent, but we're like 18th or 20th amongst the industrialized world as far as the education quality, the number of students that graduate, the number of students that that meet reading and write, reading writing and math expectations you know, standards so we it's not spending money because we've continued to spend money and things have gotten worse not better in fact i saw one study a few years ago that showed that the longer a student was in public school the worse their proficiency became so it's obviously not spending money now i have some ideas of how we can make things better but if i look at this and i, I what do i see I see, and by the way, this article is on the Daily Caller. You can find it. You can find the links to the, the 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 data analysis from the Illinois State Board of Education in their annual report. Um, you know, this is not me just pulling numbers out of the air. But to me, it is pretty obvious that we have to do something if we want a better educated gen- following generations. If we want the rising generations to be educated, we have to do something different. Because there are significant places, let's just focus on Chicago. There are significant schools in Chicago that have problems. 
And it may not surprise you that my suggested answers have nothing to do with with getting more government. It has to do with getting government out of the way. Actually, my best answer is we need parents that are engaged. See, when we, we take the schools and make put them in replacement of parents, the schools fail. When you put government as a replacement for parents, they fail as parents. And there is plenty of evidence to show it. I've shown you just a little bit of it. But there's also evidence that there are those in this education system well, that are worried about educating something other than reading, writing, and arithmetic. In just one of the latest examples, there is a, a teacher in a Long Island elementary school that uh, is currently being sued, claiming that she started referring to a fifth grade girl as a boy. Gave her a boy's name, referred to as he, him pronouns, all, by the way, without informing the parents in any way, shape, or form. Now, this happened starting back in October of 21, so the beginning of the 21-22 school year. Now, it wasn't months later until January of last year, January 22, the girl was drawing suicidal imagery. She was using words like, I want to kill myself. Only then were the parents informed that she was being groomed to be transgender in a public school. Now, does that mean all public schools are doing this? No. Does it mean all teachers are doing this? No. But we need to be aware that there are teachers in schools. There are There is evidence of significant numbers of teachers in school that are promoting their own political and social agenda rather than simply teaching, reading, writing, arithmetic, and, by the way, very few seem to be teaching civics, much less the actual Constitution. So let's... Look at this using our foundation. Is there evidence that the, uh, the current public school system is failing a significant number of our students? Yes. Some schools are doing better than others. But we're seeing plenty of examples of education being replaced with not just indoctrination, but sociopolitical indoctrination. And by the way, it's not just the examples like this Long Island school. How many parents have been thrown out of of school board meetings for simply reading material that is given to the children to read because that that, that, that material is pornographic? It's actually illegal to read that at the school board, but it's being given to teachers, it's being given to students to learn. How many students are being shown a, a false history without the ability to challenge it. And let's face it, how many young people do you know cannot make change? Their math skills are so bad, they cannot make change. They cannot compose a a letter without using uh, social media shorthand. It's not working. So the question then becomes, all right, now we start thinking about what can we do about it? And that, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, it's another, it's a completely different question. My point here today is there is evidence that there's a problem. And until we recognize that there is a problem, we're not going to do anything to fix it. And for those school board members and, and, and teachers and administrators that say, there's nothing going on here. It's all the, the crazy right-wing parents. Um, We've got facts and evidence, and our facts and evidence should trump your 
theories, your opinions every day of the week. The fact that it doesn't, well, it says a lot about the the standard of education in America today. Now, I, I have some more examples I want to look at, but I've got to take another break. Before I go, though, I want to remind you, the Constitution Study is just one of several voices on America Out Loud Talk Radio, and also on our podcast and, and, and website. So please, every day, go to AmericaOutloud.com and see what's going on. Get different points of view. Analyze their, their evidence. But don't keep it to yourself. Share it. Share the, the stories, the videos, the podcasts, the articles by sharing this information. We can help others to think critically, to analyze this data, and to help secure the blessings of liberty. You already know Genesis plus HOCL is your best defense against viruses. But did you also know it's the most powerful weapon for eliminating airborne mold too? Customers are raving about the Genesis Fogger's ability to tackle mold problems and the bad smells that go with them. And we all know mold is a hazard to your health. There's no airborne invader that Genesis can't handle. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. For 40 years, alarmists have been warning of a climate catastrophe, yet none of their dire predictions have come true. Temperatures have not soared, sea level rise has not been unusual, and extreme weather events have not increased in either frequency or intensity. In short, there is no climate emergency. For 15 years, the International Climate Science Coalition has led the call for climate realism and a Made in America climate plan, a plan based on real science that responds to the real-world needs of Americans, supports economic growth, and strengthens our essential infrastructure. A plan that protects the environment and ensures that Americans can enjoy the blessings of clean air, clean land, and clean water for generations to come. It's time to put ideology and pseudoscience aside. It's time for a sensible climate plan. For more information or to donate, visit our website, icsc-climate.com. America out loud beats to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, you're troubled, confused, glad, and thankful. Well, we know you because we are you. AmericaOutloud.com. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. America Out Loud Talk Radio. The liberty and justice for all. Welcome back, everyday Americans. You've rejoined the Constitution Study, and today we're talking about learning to think. I spent the first segment talking about the foundational principles we use here at the Constitution Study when we study and analyze uh, different claims and, and events. I spent a good chunk of the second segment talking about our education system and how it's not designed to teach people to think. Well, I want to talk about, in the third segment, a couple of different ideas that are bound to a couple other articles I want to analyze. Now, you've probably heard about ChatGPT and artificial intelligence. Now, I never dealt with artificial intelligence programming directly, although I did build several systems on which artificial intelligence ran. And as part of that, I learned the basics of how it works. 
Now, every AI system I've been involved with runs on what's called a, a neural network. It's a way in a computer to emulate the, the pattern recognition capabilities of the human brain. Every AI, by the way, is trained. In other words, just like a, a, a child when born has very little information, they need to be trained. Well, same thing with as an, as an AI. If you're trying to build an AI, which, by the way, AIs aren't magical. You know, the, the, the Terminator, uh, Matrix, no, those, if they're even possible, and I doubt that they are, they are decades, if not centuries away. So what an AI basically does is you teach it to recognize something. That's its primary purpose. So uh, let's say you are trying to train an AI to recognize um, Ford pickup trucks in pictures. So you, um, you know, let's say, brother, you're going to identify the type of pickup truck. So you show it a picture. You point out where the truck, the Ford pickup truck is. You say, that's a Ford pickup truck. Positive. You do this over and over and over again. Then you start showing it, showing the AI pictures, and you say, where's the Ford pickup truck? When it gets it right, you say yes. When it gets it wrong, you say no. And the AI learns to pattern match. Now, what does this have to do with chat GPT? Chat GPT is what's called a, uh, um, a language learning model. Meaning it isn't looking at pictures, it's looking at language. It, it, you might consider it's a natural language processor. Think of, of uh, the Enterprise at Star Trek, right? When, when, when you know, someone says, computer, answer this question. That's basically what's only it doesn't understand the spoken word, it's looking at the written word. Cool. It still was trained. It was trained first how to recognize language and take a, a sentence and figure out what the person was asking for. It was also trained how to fulfill many of those tasks. Where does it find information to do this? Now, proof that AIs aren't magic. There have been multiple reports of chat GPT demonstrating, well, it's called a certain political views. Now, where do you think it got these political views? from the people that trained it. For example, one person said that chat GPT refused to write a poem admiring former President Trump. It said it, the, the, they said it claiming it didn't have the capacity to have opinions and feelings about a specific person. The bot then explained that it would be inappropriate to generate content to promote or glorify an individual. Yet when it was asked to write a poem praising President Biden, no problem. ChatGPD produced a, a prose glorifying Joe Biden. In fact, it wrote, Joe Biden, leader of the land, with a steady hand and a heart of a man, you took the helm in troubled times with a message of unity, it chimes. I thought it wasn't supposed to promote or glorify any individual. Now, personally, I'm not the least bit surprised. Again, the advantage of I spent 30 years in IT. I understand the process enough to know that this AI was trained most likely by people with an extremely progressive political bent, we'll say, that's very, uh, 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 very promoted of the Democratic Party and their leadership, and it shows. So what is the, 
what do we look here? Chat GPT is not magic. It is it is a, a it basically it's it's a language processor and a research engine. You could almost say it's like Google search on steroids, right? You pipe in the information, you, you ask Google a question, it gives you answers. What ChatGPT can do is take those answers and put them in a form that you can use for a, a term paper or something. That's all it is. So when I analyze these these claims about ChatGPT, I understand it's just a machine. It's nothing new. Well, let's take another example here. Uh, there's a tweet by John Bresnum says that the House Foreign Affairs Committee will mark up a bill tomorrow that would allow the president to ban TikTok in the United States. Okay, so this is an opinion. He hasn't provided any evidence yet. So what do I do? I go to the original source. Guess what? I found a copy off of the House website of this proposed legislation. And I looked at it. I did. Granted, it was only a brief look. But I found in it Section 301, in general, not later than 90 days after the date of the enactment of this act, and every 180 days thereafter for three years, the president shall transmit to the appropriate congressional committee a determination of whether reasonable grounds exist for concluding that any of the entities described in subsection B meets the criteria described in sections 102 and 102 for the purpose of applying directive described in such sections and have engaged in conduct described in section 201. Okay. In other words, sanctions. This is what they're, 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 what they're talking about in sections 102 and 201. Have to do with, does it meet the requirement for sanctions? Have they, uh, uh, so should we imply sanctions? Now, the entities described in this list are ByteDance, TikTok, any subsidiary or successor of an entity described uh, or owned, uh, in, in paragraph 102, meaning ByteDance or TikTok, any entity owned or controlled directly or indirectly by an entity described in Paragraph one, and uh, as, as these are the places. So yes, this bill could possibly um, ban TikTok. How? Well, going back to the directive section, we find that not later than 180 days after the date of the enactment of this act, the Secretary of the Treasury shall issue a directive prohibiting United States persons from engaging in any transaction with a person that the Secretary of the Treasury determines knowingly provides or may transfer sensitive personal data to any person or subject outside of the jurisdiction of the United States, to any foreign person, which is the claim made about TikTok, that they are transferring personal data. Now, is this constitutional? Well, reading through the, the bill, scanning through the bill, um, this is focused on companies that are owned overseas, owned by other, other countries, or subsidiaries of companies owned of those companies they're the ones the sanctions are being placed on, which means this could logically fall under the uh, foreign commerce clause of the Constitution of the United States. I'd have to get into this a lot deeper, but what I wanted to show you as an example of, here's how we analyzed what was happening. A person made a claim. Congress is working on legislation that would ban TikTok. We went and found the evidence. We looked at the evidence. And then we analyze the evidence to come to our conclusion. Now, let's take another example. Uh, this headline, Tennessee Senators Blackburn and Haggerty sponsor a bill that would establish more oversight transparency uh, for the World Health Organization. Okay, and they talk about claims about, you know, the WHO is a puppet of the Chinese government and, and this will, will make things better. Well, I took a look at the actual bill. Again, 
that was that's an opinion. Let me find the evidence. I found the bill. The bill claims that its purpose is to require any convention, agreement, or other international instrument on pandemic prevention, preparedness, and response reached by the World Health Assembly to be subject to Senate ratification. Now, under the sense of the Senate section, we read, the Senate strongly prefers that any agreement related to the pandemic prevention, preparedness, and response adopted by the World Health Assembly pursuant to the work of the INB be considered a treaty requiring the advice and consent of the Senate with two-thirds of senators concurring. All right, so why should this be considered a... a well, actually, before I get there, let me go one point one other down. Um, in, in section four... It says, notwithstanding any other provision of law, any convention, agreement, or other international instrument on pandemic prevention, preparedness, and response reached by the World Health Assembly pursuant to the recommendations report of work of the International Negotiating Body established by the second special session of the World Health Assembly is deemed to be a treaty that is subject to the requirements of Article 2, Section 2 Clause of the Constitution of the United States, which requires the advice and consent of the Senate with two-thirds of the senators concurring. (sighs) So, all right, here's the evidence. Yes, there is legislation. Uh, does this legislation, is this legislation uh, meant to establish more oversight and transparency? No. No, this has nothing to do with, over, with, with oversight or transparency for the WHO. This legislation says, by the way, we think this is a treaty. Right? It is the sense of the Senate that these international uh, agreements are treaties. Therefore, they're required to be ratified by the... Uh, they're supposed to be done with the advice and consent of the Senate. Now, I would go a step further. I would say it's not only the, 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 the sense of the Senate. I, I would not even say that it needs to be deemed. These are treaties. Uh, Webster's 1828 Dictionary um, defines a treaty as an agreement, league, or contract between two or more nations or sovereigns. So, are these agreements agree, with the WHO? Are they an agreement? Yes. Okay, so they meet that part. Is it between two or more nations or sovereigns? Yes. These 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 papers are being signed by multiple. Nations. The WHO is basically the uh, the coordinator. Therefore, it legally is a treaty, which means if it is not ratified by the Constitution of the United States, it has no legal authority within the United States. It is not the supreme law of the land. It has no legally binding authority. So based on this analysis, the headline is wrong. Uh, the first paragraph of the article is wrong. And what we're, what the, the the legislation, the bill that, that is being looked at, really is basically saying, listen, this is a treaty. It must be treated like a treaty. I only wish they went farther and said, oh, by the way, if you don't go through this, it means absolutely nothing. Now, last but not least, it's not an article, but this this is a piece of information you may find useful. Um, the uh, we, We've all heard about election integrity and and problems and and one of the fundamental things we see are issues with the voter rolls well there's a foundation the public interest legal foundation has created um uh, i guess a database of errors in in the voter rolls in other words who is on the rolls as being eligible to vote and they had this nice little interactive thing and and uh, you can hover over your 
uh, your state and you can click a button and it'll tell you how your state is done. Now, for example, all right, I live in Tennessee now. And if I go to Tennessee and I click read more, it says the, the de how many decreased registration at, uh, as of 2018, 11,126. 2016 duplicate vote credits. I'm not quite sure what that is. I'm, I don't see uh, an explanation of that here, although maybe it's buried somewhere and I, I, didn't, I haven't found it yet. Um, but registrants credited for voting from non-residential addresses in 2018, 395. So the total in 2018, uh, the number of registrants went down a little over 11,000 and uh, 395 people voted from non-residential addresses. Now let me compare that to my old home state of New York and what do we see? Decreased number of registrants as of 2018, over 59,000. Uh, the 2016 vote duplicate vote credit was 94. In 2018, it's now 36, so I guess that's getting better. The number of registrants voting from non-residential addresses was 1,312 in 2018. But include some more information about the quality of what's going on, including a statement that says 3.1 million New York voter registrations are missing critical information. So why is this important? Well, as I said, we need evidence. So if you go to the website, it's public, uh, it was a publicinterestlegal.org, and if you look for the voter roll error map, you can look at this data and, and you can arm yourself with more information because that's really what this, this learning to think is about. It's about applying a logical, rational analysis of what's going on. It goes all the way back to that definition of critical thinking, exercising or involving careful judgment or judicious evaluation. This is how we do this. At least this is how I do this. Now, I hope that you find that useful and helpful and, and maybe interesting. And I hope you'll keep an eye out for as this class comes along. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm still working a lot of the details. Um, it's going to be part of a group, and, and I'm not sure what's going to be where yet. But I will have a part on this, this the foundations of study, making sure that we build a strong foundation on which to build not only our opinions, but our studies. So that, again, we can make cogent arguments, reasonable arguments, strong arguments, but also so that when people come with, with, with their arguments, we have a way of evaluating and understanding them. Remember, John Jay said, every member of the state ought diligently to read and study the Constitution of his country. That word diligence is important. And I believe part of it is having a, a, an appropriate study methodology and, and having a, a foundation to make sure that when you read something, when you study it and you analyze it, the answer you come out to, you come out with matches the truth. Not your truth, not their truth, the truth, singular truth. What is, what is real. And notice, John Jay didn't say, have the schools teach the rising generation be free. He says, no, we should teach the rising generation be free. We should be teaching ourselves. Meaning it requires our action. It's one more thing we have to do. But as I've found over my years of, of careful study, that by applying these tools, these techniques, we end up with a, 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 a knowledge base that is strong and it's resilient, but still flexible enough to allow for countervailing information to be presented and analyzed and then determine whether or not to incorporate it. And I hope you find that 
something worthwhile. If you do, please leave a comment. Let me know if you'd be interested in this type of class as a standalone or as part of something else. I'd always be interested. Now, of course, you can always come back here. The Constitution Study, every Wednesday at 4 p.m. can be heard on America Out Loud Talk Radio, heard on the iHeartRadio Network. You can also listen on podcasts. It's available on your favorite podcast players. Generally comes out about a day or two after the episode's heard on the radio. But do me a favor. Subscribe, rate, and review the show. It helps other people find the Constitution Study as well. Now, if you're interested, you can find all the links at the homepage at AmericaOutloud.com. But I ask you, I beg you to share this information. Help others understand the importance of, of learning to think, and by doing so, sharing the blessings of liberty. <laughs>